You can go ahead and have a seat. And one of the first things I probably should address with you is to let you know I am not Dan Min. Some of you were a little confused. Like, there's this guy, but we don't know who he is. And he's up here. My name is Aaron Henning. I'm actually technically Dan Min's boss. So it's kind of cool to get to come in and stand in his pulpit today. Dan and I are doing a little pulpit swap. We're both walking through the Kingdom Way series. And so he's preaching at SCAC, the home church. And that's where I spend a lot of my time. Before that life, my wife Amy and I were actually here on campus for 11 years. We spent 11 years of our uh, time uh, here, and, and this particular ministry taught us so much about what it was like to be the, the body of Christ, and uh, so we're really grateful for that. We had some in- incredible times. Uh, you know, this ministry, I just want to take a minute, um, and uh, before we get into the major content, you guys can turn me down just a little bit. I'm a little, little bit of a hot mic. Um, one of the things that is, is fantastic about this ministry is, first of all, it's, as, it's older than almost all of you. You know, this, this ministry right here called Alliance Christian Fellowship started in 1975, about the same time that I was getting born, okay? So ACF and I are the same age. Uh, and over the now decades, what we've seen happen, and, and again, I feel like this is good context for you to understand because for many of you, you come to Penn State University and you, don't, you, you just kind of jump in and, you know, there's a place that I want to be a part of and a, a group that I want to be a part of. But what you may not realize is that for the last several decades that this group right here in the middle of Penn State University, which is in the middle of Pennsylvania, which is a, a, a major uh, trend setter in terms of where our country goes, which is the most powerful country in the world, you're doing something significant and very central in terms of the kingdom of God. Over the years, people have come from these seats that you sit in. I know you don't normally sit in these particular seats. You're usually over alumni hall. Uh, but going out, uh, some of the, the fastest-growing church plants in our denomination uh, right now are actually being led by students who were part of this ministry. Missionaries that have gone out and circled the globe and gone out, started new ministries, all kinds of incredible things that are happening from students that sat in places just like you are now. And so I do not overestimate or underestimate the significance of what, what it is that God wants to do with you. This is your season, this is your time, and we have the privilege together of seeing what it is that God wants to do at a major university like Penn State University. It's pretty amazing. So in that spirit, here's what we've managed to do. I am going to continue on in the series, The Kingdom Way. I am a stranger to most of you, and I get to speak on the topic of lust. Not only did we plan that really beautifully, uh, we'd managed to do it on a weekend that we are talking with uh, parents weekend here. So you get the privilege of hearing a stranger talk to you about lust with your mom or dad potentially sitting next to you. So I thought, we're going to just go ahead and make this as awkward as possible. We're going to spend a lot of time in small groups. So you can talk just with your parents about your biggest struggles with lust. And maybe they would share it. Well, okay, we're actually not going to do that. Um, some of you are like, get me out of here really quick. Some of you parents are like, get me out of here quick. Uh, but God is good. I, I love that as we go through uh, Jesus' teaching, what a privilege that we have, right, to, to hear from the Savior. This, this was his message that he crafted. These were the things that he said he thought were important for his hearers to hear. And so as we follow in that today, I'm going to ask you to turn to, to Matthew chapter 5. 
Uh, we're going to do just a little bit of review just to make sure that we're kind of up to speed, and then we're going to be reading, uh, focusing primarily in verses 27 through 30 today, a short uh, passage, but certainly packed with, uh, with a lot of content for us to uh, consider. So let's go ahead and read that, and then we'll kind of set the stage and get into it together. Matthew chapter 5, 27 and following says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So may God add blessing to the reading of his word. Um, what we are counting on is what Jesus said, that his word is not going to return void. And so if we can approach this, even an awkward sort of subject like this, with an open heart and spirit, I think that the Lord has something really significant for us. I, wanna, I, want, to, I want to also address one other, one other piece. Um, in my current role, uh, so I serve as a lead pastor at State College Alliance Church, which was a few miles down the road. Uh, we have the wonderful privilege of kind of giving some oversight, but I think a lot of freedom to ministries like this, Alliance Christian Fellowship. And so the, the major difference that I've noticed in the last about six years that I've been doing in my current, current job, my current role, is that whereas before I was dealing primarily with young adults in the 18 to 24 kind of range like you guys are, there is something very pivotal about the time of life that you're in right now. You're making, you're making audacious declarations, and you've sung audacious declarations today. Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to seek nothing greater than you. That's, I mean, that's an audacious declaration, and then you're at that pivotal place where you're actually growing in to that statement. So you're learning to be disciplined. You're learning to be refined. You're learning accountability. You're learning to sharpen one another. And the blessing of what God is doing and has done historically through groups like this is that then you emerge into the quote-unquote real world with your faith having been very tested. I've always said if you can stand up for your faith at a place like Penn State University, you can stand up for your faith anywhere. We see people coming out of universities like this who are, who are ready, who are, who are focused, who understand, have already made the decision to say, I'm going to follow hard after Christ. I'm already, I'm already made the, I've already made the decision. I will make hard adjustments in my life with the end goal of being I want to know Christ better. So some of you don't realize that's what you're doing, but that's what you're doing. I talk to people all the time, almost on a weekly basis, sometimes on a daily basis, and I come away with this thought of like, I wish I could have spoken into your life when you were 19. You know, because now I've got a guy who's 35, 40, 42, trying to raise kids, trying to have a family, trying to hold down a job and do all of those things. And now finally thinking, you know what, maybe I should actually start thinking a little bit more about this obedience to Christ thing. Maybe I really should start allowing God to do some heart surgery in me. And I think, man, that's great. But it's so much better if you can work on that stuff when you're 18, 19 and 20. And so, so many of you are doing that. The other, the, the other flip side is this. Um, I talk to people all the time who had a strong spiritual faith-building experience in college, hopefully like many of you are getting now, 
And they are coming out ready to serve. They're coming out sort of, they're, they're, they're strong leaders in the church. That's the beautiful thing, again, about ACF. I don't want to, we got a lot of things to cover here today, so I don't want to go on too long on it. But that's the other thing that's so powerful. We did a study several years ago about leaders who have come out of this ministry, and it was like hundreds of people who have gone into professional vocational ministry. Powerful, powerful stuff. Many of them doing significant kingdom advancing work. And then we asked the question, I wonder if we could figure out how many people have graduated from a ministry, our ministry like this and are just serving in the church? Maybe they're not a vocational pastor or, or, or missionary or something like that. And we absolutely could not track it. The amount of leadership and, and healthy leaders that have, have come out of here making impact on churches all over the state, all over the country, it was literally too much for us to track. And so again, I just want to emphasize to you the importance of doing this good heart work at this, at this uh, stage. So let's, let's get into this. As we study the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we begin to see this kingdom way that Jesus came to bring. It's a kingdom thing, and that is, uh, we define it this way, life as God intends it. So when Jesus says things like, repent for the kingdom of God is near, he's not saying you gotta just quit being bad people and start being good people. He's saying a whole new way of living, a whole new way of being is coming. And I've come to reveal that to you. So this is this kingdom way, life as God intended it. Just do a quick mental exercise with me. When you look around at your world, are there places that you would say, I don't think that is life as God intended it? Because does anything come to mind? I'm just, this is actually sort of a pulse check because you should be able to look around at your world and go, yeah. There's, there's messes all over the place, right? There's things that we encounter. So this, is, this doesn't seem to be life as God intended it. Let me ask you to take a step a little more personal. Is there anything in your own life, it's easy to see it out there, but that you go, you know what? I don't think I'm living life as God intended it in this area. And that doesn't have to force us to run. That actually can force us to run to God and not away from him. So this is the idea. It's a, it's a kingdom thing, life as God intended it. So it starts in the message talking about the truly happy, and I think you guys went through the hashtag blessed. Uh, you know, what does it mean to be, to be truly happy in the Beatitudes? That's verses 1 through 12. Then we talk about living out our true calling. What does it mean to be salt in a decaying world and light to push back the darkness? Verses 13 to 16. And then, this is so vitally pivotal. That's why I'm kind of reviewing it with you for a moment. Verses 17 to 20 Christ, the fulfillment of the law, so that now Jesus is actually saying a righteousness has been revealed. Righteousness of Christ, righteousness of God is being revealed in the person of Christ. And he makes this audacious claim. He says, I haven't come to, to get rid of your law, I've come to fulfill it. I haven't come to throw away the work of the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. And so now Jesus in him, he says, I'm going to bring a new covenant, and that's what we're talking about. It's vitally important that we understand that, because then he immediately says, as you heard last week, let's now talk about some of those issues of what it actually means to live as God intends. So you've heard it said, don't be angry, right? You've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm going to tell you, don't, don't even have anger in your heart. And now he comes in this passage today, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, I'm going to say don't even have lust in your life. And he doesn't mind going after real issues, right? I mean, this is, this is Christ. This is our, our king. He's saying, I want to talk about anger. I want to talk about lust. I want to talk about marriage. I want to talk about forgiveness. This is gritty, real-life kind of stuff. And so we get a chance to look at it here for a moment. 
Uh, the, I'd like to just do this in two parts, and uh, I think we'll, we'll kind of make sort of quick time going through this. But bear with me as we look first at the Old Covenant sexual ethic. Uh, Jesus is clearly building on something and is accepting of what we would call an Old Covenant sexual ethic. You have heard it said. Jesus says this a lot. You've heard it said, but I say to you, usually what Christ is doing when he does this is not saying, you've heard it said and that was wrong. He's saying, you've heard it said, but I'm actually going to take it a step farther. I'm going to take it a step deeper. I'm going to challenge you a little bit, not even just so much what you do, but the way that you think and the way that you process and what's in your heart. So how do we sum up if Jesus is really uh, building on and accepting of the old covenant sexual ethic? What does that actually mean? Uh, There's a teaching by uh, Tim Keller uh, I don't know if any of you have read any of his stuff, Tim Keller, uh, Meaning of Marriage, and he's, he's spoken on this on many different uh, settings. Uh, but I think it gives us a clue that is really, really important. Uh, I, wanna, I want you to consider this morning the old covenant sexual ethic of sex inside of a covenant. That's essentially what it is. Sex is not, is not horrible, it's not a bad thing, but, but Jesus saying in the old, old Covenant affirming that sex inside of a covenant. Now here's what gets really interesting. A covenant, this is not a word that we use very often. Raise your hand if you've used the word covenant at some point in the last 24 hours. You know, I covenant with you that we will have breakfast at 7 a.m. You know what I mean? You don't do that. I, I covenant with you, Penn State, that I will pay my tuition. You don't do that. You don't actually have a covenant relationship with Penn State. You have very few covenant kind of relationships in your life. But a covenant is an important thing. It creates a far more intimate relationship than a legal one, but it's a far more binding and enduring thing than an emotional one. Walk, walk through this with me for just a moment. Many of you have consumer relationships. In consumer relationships, what are you doing? You're marketing and you're conditioned. Your relationship with Penn State is a consumer relationship, whether you realize that or not, right? Many of you probably made a decision. You said, I'm going to come here because they're going to give me something that I need. And you know what? They're just so gracious they're going to do it to, they're going to give that to you without any kind of strings attached. No, that's not true at all. They're going to say, you're going to pay us so that you can get a degree. Now, if you get a scholarship, that's good, but even that is conditional, right? Some of you are scholarship students, but what happens if you blow off your responsibilities? Well, I'm carrying, I, I had a friend of mine, uh, my freshman year in college, he was so bright, but he got himself all kind of tangled up and stuff. He was drinking too much and had all these kind of problems. And so we were talking at Christmas break, you know, when you had that first comparison, how'd your first semester go? And mine was, you know, it was okay. I was here at Penn State, actually. Uh, he was at another school. And he goes, well, I got a 3-3. And I was like, well, 3-3 is not that bad. And he's like, ah, it was like a point three three. I was like, okay, that's bad. Yeah, that's, that ain't good. So scholarship goes out the window. Why? Because he's not holding up his end or his condition, right? So we have consumer relationships. We have contractual relationships. This is a give and take situation. But here's the deal, and this is so key that we understand this. In a contractual relationship, you're always looking for the better deal, right? So if somebody says to you, well, I could give you this opportunity to study in this place, but somebody else says, well, I can give you a better opportunity to study in this place, you say, well, why wouldn't I do that? It's a better deal. 
Now, what in the world does this have to do about sex or committing adultery and old, old covenant sexual ethic? In our sexual experience, we are called to embrace sex within a covenantal relationship. Think about your world for a moment and think how far off-center we are with regard to everything we just said. Consumerism, contractual relationships. I mean, you have friends probably right now, maybe some of you are in a relationship right now where you would say, well, you know, it's, it's kind of a wait-and-see thing, right? You know, I, 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 maybe there's potential there. Maybe there is, but the fact of the matter is I'm going to wait and see. I remember talking with a, with a student. Uh, we were doing, I was doing his pre-marriage counseling, and, and the, the, the girl, I mean, these are people, they love Jesus, and they're wonderful folks, actually former students right here at Penn State. They've gone on to do some great things. But when they were at that phase of trying to think about next steps in life, she finally kind of the light bulb goes off, and she goes, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not sure I couldn't do better. <laughs> so he's like, I spent all this time trying to draw her out of her shell. Now I think I've created a monster because now she's wondering, well, I think I could do better than you. You know what I mean? She's, and now this has nothing to do with sex in that context, but it was, it was the reality of relationship, and she's got to make a decision. Do I actually want to commit my life to this person? Or maybe I could do better. So think about Old Testament covenant, which Jesus affirmed, and your current reality where sex, this is according to Tim Keller, is not considered as a covenant good, but as a consumer good. And what, does, what effect does that have on our ability to think in terms of covenant? Uh, I'm going to just give you a couple examples. What happens in a covenant relationship? I am married to my wife. We've made a covenantal relationship to one another, which basically means my life at its core my actions at their core exist for the betterment of the relationship, not myself. That's covenant. That's how Christ loves you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Interestingly, that is how parents love their kids. Most of you don't have kids. Some of you were the kids in this. Some of you parents are here, so we can give this example, right? Uh, when you have kids, it's very much a one-way street, is it not? I mean, they don't give you a whole lot back. The first six months, they just kind of poop and eat and, you know, I mean, they just throw up on you and make messes and you lose your sleep and all that kind of stuff. And yet, when, when parents talk about their kids, they say, I just, I, I love these kids. They're making me miserable. They're making me tired. Sometimes they're even breaking my heart. But, but parents and kids, it's very interesting. Parents will love their children even when they're very unlovely. Some of you have been very unlovely at times to your parents only to find that they still love you very deeply. Because in a healthy, covenantal, parental relationship, that's how it works. Some of you parents kind of elbow your kids. That's all right. That's what you're here for. You make a promise, and you say, the relationship is more important than my needs. What happens when we do that is that the feelings actually go significantly deeper, which is why we said in the beginning that a covenant creates a far more intimate relationship than a legal one, but far more binding and enduring than an emotional one. So why are we saying all of these things? This is, we're just kind of getting the platform set and then we're, we're gonna kind of get to it here. C.S. Lewis, Soren Kierkegaard, more modernly Tim Keller, all of these guys agree that there is an alignment called for in the old covenant sexual ethic that Jesus affirmed, an alignment between our life and our actions 
So specifically now to sex, this is where we get to the part about sex, where we say in sexuality that's within a covenant, it's a beautiful, life-giving, even a healing sort of thing, but here's what it means. I'm doing with my body what I have committed with my life. You do not have that in a contract. You do not have that in a consumer relationship. You do have that in covenant. So here, and this is, this is such good grounding things for you. Many of you are not married yet, but you're thinking about that. Would I be willing to do with my life what I'd like to do with my body with this person? In other words, to be vulnerable, to be naked in a literal sense, but in a figurative sense as well. Nothing hidden from this person. Totally revealed to this person. Totally giving of myself to this person. That is the integrity in sex that all these folks have said. C.S. Lewis said it this way, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union. So that's why we actually have a disconnect in our world. I realize, yeah, I mean, Tim Keller talks about this is very, 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 very countercultural. So I'm, I'm understanding that reality, even as you hear that, you say, my friends would never understand this. And I get that. But the reality is this, that in the, the worldly context of sex that just says, hey, it's been three dates, so it's about time, what am I doing? I'm saying I'm going to isolate one kind of union while ignoring the others. And so there's a pull on my heart and the fabric of my life that I could give you tons and tons of quotes and examples of people who would say, this is actually very, very damaging. The sexual experiment that we're doing in some of your lives, you remember, you've maybe been through some of those roads and said, you know, there was a disconnect between my heart and my life, and it was actually causing a strain that not only can cause a strain in the immediate, but can cause a strain in the future. So I talk to families now, I talk to married couples now who are saying our sexual challenges in the past are now showing up again with a lack of an ability to really have intimacy. Uh, the other thing, and again, just we'll, we'll count this all as your first kind of series of pre-marriage counseling because some of you are going to get married anyway, and so you can just send me a check later on. Okay. Um, <laughs> When I talk with married couples who are struggling, nine times out of 10, what they're struggling is trying to understand better how do we live out a covenantal kind of married relationship together, which in some ways has very little to do with their sex life, but in another way, it has everything to do with it because the physical represents what's happening there. So we don't want to have this lack of integrity. Um, interestingly, again, uh, quoting Keller here, he talks about sex as a covenant renewal ceremony, that sex inside of the covenant of marriage leads to a renewal, it leads to healing, it leads to fulfillment, intimacy, all of these things that the Bible is, is wild about and encouraging us to do, but to do in the, right, uh, in the right connection. So essentially we're saying, I'm saying to my wife when we are sexually engaged with one another, I said, I belong to you and I'm, I'm acting that out. Does that make sense? So here's a crazy thing. Even non-faith-based people can hear that and say, that actually doesn't sound horrible. Do you remember the, the movie, um, remember the movie Mean Girls? Anybody ever see the movie Mean Girls? My favorite little scene is all the guys are like, I'm not gonna admit it, but yeah, I thought it was actually pretty um, My favorite line in that movie is when they're in the health class in high school or whatever, and the health teacher says something along these lines. He says, he says uh, you all are getting to the age where you want to touch each other, and if you do, you'll die. You remember that? That was, like, that was the message. That was kind of the sexual ethic. I think a lot of times when we read teachings like this, we ought to be very careful that we're not superimposing 
that kind of just, you know, you're going to want this. And if you do that, I mean, Jesus is talking about, he's not even say dying. He's talking about going to hell and everything. So, I mean, this is high level stuff. You better not think about it. You better not do it. You better not think about doing it, et cetera, and everything. And I don't think that that's the case. I think what the Old Testament sexual ethic says is you need to do it in the right context. And Jesus affirms that. He says, you've heard it said. But I say to you something deeper. This is what he says. He says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. There we go. We, we got one whole verse down. How, how are we doing on time here today? We got, uh, oh yeah, it's only 10, 11.37. So we'll do 20 minutes on each verse and we'll have you out of here by dinner. Um, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is he doing? What is Jesus doing here? Let's, let's make sure we're not understanding what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying... If you have sexual desire, you're going to hell. You know, that's, that's you know, oh, you're going to hell. That's, that's it. That's bad. You can't do that. You can't have it. You're, you are just going to hell. He doesn't say that. In fact, we know he doesn't say that because the word that he uses is a fascinating one. I started thinking about this before I did the word study, and it absolutely confirmed what I thought Jesus was saying. What he is using in this word is a word that is commonly uh, associated with greed and idolatry. So it's not just lust. It's not just lust for the sake of, oh, I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at or I, I thought about something in a way I shouldn't have thought about or whatever or I, or I, or I objectified a person in a way that I shouldn't have done that or I had this, this uh, lack of integrity between my action and my life, seeking union without, you know, one kind without the other. Uh, it's not just that. He's talking about coveting. He's talking about desiring. He's talking about this thing with lust. In, in other words, what is he saying? That sex may be used with greed in mind and even be made into an idol. Well, he gives us sort of an extreme, uh, extreme example here, and then he gets even sort of violent with it. He's saying, he's saying, this is so sort of spiritually deadly that you need to take extreme action. And he gives this example, cut your hand off, gouge your eye out, do what it takes to get this sort of, uh, get, get this ugliness out of you by God's grace. Why does he do that? And why do scriptures, things like 1 Thessalonians, certainly back up, uh, you know, uh, this is Paul's writing to the, to the Thessalonians. He says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you uh, how to live in order to please God. In fact, as you are living, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord to do this more and more, for you know that instructions we gave you are by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then it says this, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that means set apart, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Top of the list. What is it that Christ knows? And what is it that Scripture affirms that we need to be aware of so that we can be healthy in this area? Well, here's what we kind of begin to find. Um, we could look at all kinds of examples of, of what happens when you take that Old Testament sexual ethic, don't commit adultery. That requires two people, right? You've got to go out and you've got to find somebody, you've got to do something you weren't supposed to do. And then Jesus is saying, no, I want you to look at your mind, I want you to look at your heart, I want you to look at that kind of area. Now, is this important for us when we live in a world that is so saturated with pornography? You know, we live in a, in a pornified kind of culture, and yet here's Jesus teaching saying, you've got to watch your heart and your mind. Well, think about it in the context of what we just said. Just think about this for a moment, and then we're going to bring it home. I know this is a little bit awkward, but you're adults. You'll deal with it. Um, 
What we just said a moment ago was that having a disunified sense of sex or union in this context without the other can have this stretching effect. Well, what happens when all of a sudden now I'm thinking just of myself in the realm of pornography or masturbation, right? I don't think you could get a better example of a greater sense of self-absorbedness. And there's something that happens kind of as we live out this reality of a pornified culture that we become more self-absorbed. We become less integrity, less whole on the inside. I think Jesus recognizes this. Uh, it, there's lots of studies you could look at that will tell you the crushing, unrealistic expectations that come up as we kind of fill our minds and our relationships with pornography, the, the, the relational damage that it does. Incidentally, if that's a particular issue that you go, you know what, this probably is a good time for me to be thinking about that and working on that area, not waiting till I'm 35 or 45, and I'm just telling you, it is better to work on when you're younger. Uh, we actually have some resources. We have a community group that's starting up that's called the Conquer Series, and it's, a, it's a lessons that we do. We're just trying to develop a, a, um, a sense of accountability with one another. I didn't learn a thing about account accountability until I came to college, and so this is a great time for you to be doing that. If you want more information, please talk to me about that. But here's the question I want to do, uh, I want to look at, and then we're going to start wrapping some things up. Look at what the sexualization of culture is doing to us, and ask yourself the question, how deep does that sort of rabbit hole go. You know, when you go to the dentist and they go, oh, you got a little cavity there. My father-in-law is a dentist. He sees me a lot. I married well in that regard. Um, but that's kind of the question is how, how deep is this cavity going? Ask yourself that question when you look at the broader culture around you. Let, let me give you just a quick example and then uh, a couple of examples and then we'll, we'll sort of bring this, I think, to a, to a healthy and less awkward conclusion. Um, I, I am not a deep student of culture, but I am an observer of culture. And so I will tune into various areas of culture at different times. So I listen to music, uh, just what, what's, what's popular on the radio, and so I'll listen to that for a while, and then I kind of tune out for a period of time and then tune back in. So it's a fascinating way to look at your culture because here's what you find. You see, like, people come into the cultural iconic mix, and you kind of see where they are, and then you go away for a while, and then you come back, and if they're still there, you sort of see what they're doing now. So I had some interesting uh, examples, people like Ariana Grande. I listened to songs for her, and it's like, oh, that's really neat. That's just, that's such a cute little, little thing, and up there, what a voice, you know, and everything. And then I sort of step away, and then I kind of step back into, and I, 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 I was actually reading an article, and it had all the lyrics from her uh, song, Every Day, which came out a little while ago. Some of you are like, yeah, I kind of know that song. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, it's one of those like, <laughs> what, what happened, you know, between, oh, my heart is yours and da-da-da, and now, I mean, I actually thought I'll bring out all of the lyrics to every day and read them, but I couldn't do it. I, I, I would embarrass myself to do that. It's like, this is getting pretty foul stuff here. I'll give you another example. Uh, my good friend Rihanna, I don't really know her, but... <laughs> 
I mean, the, she starts singing about like the Umbrella Ella Ella song. I mean, you remember that? Some of you too young, you know, under my umbrella. It's a catchy and it's cute and everything like that. And I, I, this is a true story. I, I'm listening to the radio. I'm driving down Atherton Street. I'm tuning into whatever the local, you know, songs are or whatever. And a song by Rihanna comes on. I was like, oh, Rihanna. Yeah, I know who that is, the Umbrella Ella Ella girl. So I'm listening to her song. And it was her song S&M. Some, some of you are familiar with that. And I was like, <laughs> I got to... I'm like, whatever I'm drinking comes out my nose, and I'm listening to these lyrics that's like, whoa. I mean, she got out from under that umbrella Ella thing, got into a whole new world here. What happened? I want to ask you to think about this. Think about it from a cultural perspective and then from your own heart's perspective. What happens when it is not enough to be talented, but you have to be talented and good-looking? What happens when it's not enough to be talented and good-looking, but you have to be sexual? What happens when you are not enough to be talented and good-looking, but you have to be sexual and even extreme in that? It's the only way that you can stay noticed, only way that you can stay relevant, only way that you can keep that spotlight. And what we see is, like, this is the nature of lust, to be always longing and never satisfied. And Jesus evokes sort of this eternative posture now, and he's talking about your eternity at stake because the reality is that when somebody gets to hell, it's the ultimate in isolation. It's the ultimate in narcissism. It's the ultimate in that brokenness that says, I'm ever hungry and I'm never satisfied. I thought about sharing this, this example with you, and I kind of went back and forth, but let me, let me just share it with you. For us to look at our culture, and thinking about, see, it's so hard when you're 20 years old and you're trying to say, you know what, I see this line of people in front of me and they're all kind of going this direction and yet I can't see what's happening at the end of the line to know, am I in the right line? You ever had that experience at a, an amusement park, you know, where you're, you're waiting uh, for the big ride and it's an hour wait and so you're snaking through this thing and you can't see the end of the line, but every now and then you hear some screams and it sounds like people are having fun, so you think, okay, I'm probably in the right place. And they come, then you see people coming out of the exit and they're laughing. And, oh, we got to do that again. And so you say, okay, I'm in the right line. What if you were to flip the script and instead of the screams of joy, you heard people saying, I'm dying, you know, and you see people coming out of the exit and they're limping and they're missing members and they're falling apart and stuff. You'd be like, I, I don't think I'm in the right line. I don't want to do this. But here's the thing. You don't always see at 20, where is that line going? Jesus is giving us a better way. He's given us a better way. I was probably about 12 years old the first time that I stumbled on pornography. And I share that with you because a really fascinating thing happened. If, if me sharing that with you makes you uncomfortable, I apologize, but I'm going to go away next week and Dan will be back and then you can say, please, please don't send your boss over here anymore. Um, here was a fascinating thing. About 12 years old, uh, this is back in the ancient dark ages, so I was looking at a magazine that I discovered at, at a relative's house and was, was infatuated. I was like, what am I seeing? I've never seen this before. I was infatuated by it. And at the same time, even as a kid, I thought, this is odd. I am simultaneously infatuated and already feeling bored What is going on with that? 
ever longing, never satisfied. That is the nature of lust. And Jesus is saying, there's a better way. Um, all right, I'm really going to burn the time if I don't wrap this thing up. So, but we're having so much fun, so, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think I can move, this, move us through this sort of quickly. Um, I'll, I'll skip that example, and we'll just come to this. Ever longing, never satisfied. It seems as though in our world, I wonder if Christ would call his church to be a people who would say, instead of being content in my discontentment, instead of being ever longing and never satisfied, I wonder if we could get this reality that Christ is actually offering us a much more hopeful picture, which is why he gives us such an extreme event. In John chapter four, Jesus talks with a woman and they begin to talk about her greatest needs. She says, I would love this living water that you talk about. I would love this living water. This, this, there's there's a, a life kind of longing that I don't have. I would love to receive that. And then Jesus gets all up in her business about her home life. Bring your husband. I don't have a husband. You had five husbands. The guy you're with now is not your husband. What's he doing? He's revealing that there are lesser loves that she is pursuing that are interfering with her ability to respond to him. And he's offering her something. He's saying your, your greatest satisfaction doesn't have to come or try to come from your longing for, for men, but you need something that only I can give you. You know, your, your sort of self-absorbed world of, of bad habits and things that just cause shame and all that kind of stuff is as if Christ would say, I get it, I understand, that's what I came to die for, but you don't have to be wrapped up in that when I can give you something better to live for. And so I asked the question, well, what would Christ say? I was going to give an example about Kevin Spacey, you know, because that's another one, right? Just a wild modern-day example of, of lust kind of run amok and go in the wrong direction. What would Christ say to him? What would Christ say to my good friend Rihanna? I think what he would say is, I've got a, a better way. And that's what he offers us. So I'm going to wrap it up. Jesus has given us a, a challenging thought. What does it mean for us to say, you know what, I want to love Christ more than anything else? Well, it begins to reveal what are those things, those, those lesser things that I would seek after. And Jesus doesn't mind going after even the uncomfortable things like sex. So don't build your life on that. Build your life on me. You've heard it said, here's this sexual ethic, but I'm saying go even farther, go even deeper. Allow by my Holy Spirit for, for your heart and your mind to be purified that you could actually be an example to a world that really, really needs it. And guys, that's the message that I would leave you with. I appreciate you taking some time to be with me today. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come forward uh, and, uh, and lead us. And I'm gonna ask you if you would just take a little bit of time and do some business with the Lord today because I would imagine if you're like me, there's probably various seasons and times in your life where God reveals those things where you say, man, you know what? Life as God intends it, I'm not pursuing that here. I'm pursuing all kinds of things that are kind of leading me in another direction. And so God actually gives us help. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us the body of Christ to walk with us, even in these tricky sort of heart issues. So much better 
to dig into it now than to wait.